You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, church, I want to begin this morning. I want to read for you a, a, a passage um, from one of my favorite books by one of my favorite authors. The, the book is called Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl. And it's by a Christian author named N.D. Wilson. The book is kind of a, a compilation of writings. If you're a linear thinker, you will hate the book. He is the most ADD author I think I've ever read. But in it, it's, it's beautiful. Uh, and I think it reflects, if I'm honest, the pace and the nature and character of life. This is the, the story that he writes about in, in one of his passages. He's, he's recalling a moment in his life and it says this. My son, my son has got his socks pulled up and his white tennis shoes on. The turf is rough for him. Even worse, on this little slope that we're walking, every lump is an obstacle for him. He's plenty fast on level ground, but this is a new difficulty. My wife and then baby are following behind. We're all cheering him on. I've given him control of the entire expedition, the whole park and no guidance. He may lead as he chooses. I see the look in his eyes and I know it. I know what it feels like. Dogs get it too, dogs and boys. The fences are down, the leash is off, the world before us. This must have been what Magellan felt like before he got scurvy. I've assumed that we would stop at some point in time, that he would pick up some distraction, a grass that needs picking, a rock, a dandelion, but we ply on, plow on until a distraction finally does come. And it whips past us almost before we notice. My boy's blonde hair is twisting in the wrong direction, so I help him. Over there, Rory. I crouch and I turn to him and I point. There's the butterfly. It's mostly black and the size of a monarch, but it doesn't move like one. This thing is fast. No flitting. It's sailing, paddling in time, keeping surprising level of altitude, never seeming to open its wings. I want to hold it. Rory says to me. The black dusted flyer is doing loops at the top of the hill 30 yards away. I want to hold it, he reiterates, and I look at his mom and I smile a knowing smile. Baby, she says to him, butterflies don't like to be held. He's not listening. So I bend my philosophies down beside him because I am indeed his father, so I will speak truth as his oracle. I will explain the world to him. Buddy, I say, for I am wise, do you see how fast it is? It won't let you touch it. It will be scared of you and it will fly away so fast. When you grow up, you'll be faster. And then we'll get you a net and then maybe you can try and catch it. His eyes are following the butterfly. It leaves its hill and it crosses the park, passing beside us. My son is considering his words again to me and he looks and says, I want to touch it. I am not believed. He is a skeptic. And then the butterfly comes, and it comes fast. It has no other speed. It passes right over our heads, and then it hesitates. It hasn't landed a single time since we've saw it, but now it lands. Not in front of us, so we can see it and accuse of, uh, it of being a large and strange moth, but it lands closer. It lands on a two-year-old's chest, just by his left shoulder. 
There it preens. Rory freezes. He doesn't need me to explain the situation. He knows how things are done. His chin drops and he stares at the butterfly on his chest. There are no flowers on his shirt, no bright colors. There's no reason why this butterfly has chosen to land there. It's simply a divine joke and it stays for a little while and then it flies away. Rory laughs, but quickly grows serious. We, his parents, of course, are talking and congratulating him, informing him as if he doesn't already know that this has been a neat thing. He looks at me and says simply, again. Rory, my voice says rather cheerfully, I don't think the butterfly is going to come back again. But I mean, it was right there on your shirt. Did you see it? Yes, he says. I want to touch it again. What else do I say? I don't quite remember, but I know I laid out the laws of reality for him because butterflies and lightning do not strike twice. And then God spoke. Do you see this man, he said to my son? He is your father. Do not believe a word, he says. The second time the butterfly landed on his arm. This morning, as we continue our walk through our sermon series, Doctrine and Emotion, we are entering into a new experience. We have walked through the experience of joy, the experience of sorrow, the experience of confidence, and the experience last week of fear. And today we are looking at the experience of faith. Now, faith is a word that most of us use a lot, but if we're honest, it's something that is difficult for us to get our arms around. And it's an experience that for most of us is foreign in our lives, though we know it plays a central role in the Christian experience. Now, faith, of course, is far more than an experience, but faith is nonetheless an experience. It's something that we interact with. It's something that we feel. It's something that colors our days. The presence of great faith or the lack of great faith is something that we feel. Now, let me give you just a a short definition of faith, and it's easy to find. It's in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And the author of Hebrews, God's Spirit Himself, gives us this definition. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. Martin Luther expanded on this definition. He he gave this. Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace. So certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Michael Horton, a, a theologian, currently wrote an article and he described faith this way. He said, faith is defiance. It is to trust God and to distrust every other promise maker. See, there is this aspect of faith that flies in the face of logic. Right when I was in uh, undergrad, my, my favorite class that I took was a, a class in the social sciences department called logic. And, and the premise of the entire course was essentially to teach me how the world works. That if A leads to B, and B 
leads to C, then A must lead to C. That's fantastic. There's two high school students that got that, or junior high students. So the rest of you need to brush up on your logic, or at least reimagine how you think the world works. Right? Logic is supposed to tell us how the world works, and we derive logic not from truth that's been set out apart from us, but by our own experiences. Right? It's why when you see rain outside while it's completely sunny, it feels absolutely befuddling. Because our experience, the logic says that rain happens when it's what? When it's cloudy outside. Fantastic. Someone else is wanting to get in on the fun. Biblical faith is a trust, assurance, hope. It's an allegiance and confidence to and in the Lord, even in the face of circumstances or doubts or fears that point us elsewhere. Faith says that we, nor our circumstances, nor the world around us has the final word. Faith says that our God does. Sinclair Ferguson, another theologian, compares the Christian life to spiritual schizophrenia. I went back this week as I was prepping uh, for this sermon and watched uh, some pieces of a movie, A Beautiful Mind. Anybody seen that movie before? So the, the movie tells the story of a mathematician who was utterly brilliant and suffered from severe schizophrenia. Severe visions that were utterly impossible for him to tell from reality. And as you watch the movie, you watch this man and eventually his wife try and grapple with how they deal moment by moment with telling whether something is real or not real. Sinclair Ferguson, in in discussing spiritual schizophrenia, says, how could we ever think that when we belong to the kingdom of heaven while we live in the kingdom of man, that this life would simply be easy for us to get our arms around? Moment by moment, we have to trust the God who is the kingdom of heaven even while we see in our face circumstances in the kingdom of this world that would cause us to doubt. So this morning in Psalm 23, we're going to look at three pictures of faith that David gives us. Three footings that we can stand and anchor ourselves into in expectation of what this life of faith is going to look like played out. Now, before we go forward, I want to take a note, and I'm going to go back to that article I mentioned from Michael Horton where he described faith as defiance because he said something else that's so important for us to understand, and he said this, faith does not create, faith receives. Let me say that again, faith does not create, faith receives. Your faith The quality of your faith, the quantity of your faith, the consistency of your faith, though it does allow you to receive the reality of who God is and what He is doing, though it allows you to receive His nature and character and goodness, it does not create it. Which means the nature and character of God, your identity in Christ Jesus, 
Your standing now and your eternity is not built on your ability to create those things through your quantity or quality of faith. And so my hope is this morning as we fix our eyes on who our God is that our faith would allow us to receive him. David begins this way in verse 1 of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The first picture that David gives us is this, that faith anticipates abundance and rest in a dry and weary land. Faith anticipates abundance and rest in a dry and weary land. David begins Psalm 23 describing the Lord our God as a shepherd. Now this is the most intimate depiction of the Lord in many ways up until this point in Scripture and certainly in the Psalms. To this point in time, God is described routinely as a king, as a ruler, as a warrior, as a deliverer, as the rock, as a shield. But now David seems to bring the lofty down to the personal as he describes the Lord as his shepherd. And when he describes him as his shepherd, he's making a delineation between the Lord our shepherd versus a hired hand. Jesus does this same thing in John chapter 10 when he calls himself the good shepherd. A shepherd versus a hired hand is not primarily defined by the roles that he does. It's primarily defined by his commitment and his proximity to the sheep that he is tending. And David says that our God is a shepherd who is utterly committed and as we will find is in intimate proximity to us. And David connects the logic, if you will, of the Lord being our shepherd to one beautiful great outcome. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And I need you to hear this as we begin to walk through this. This statement is not an in addition to. Right, It is not that now that I have the addition of the Lord to what I already had, I shall not want. Right, The picture that David gives is of a shepherd and sheep. And if you've ever been around sheep, they are utterly helpless animals. Right, I always love, like once every like three or four years, a story comes out. And it's always in Australia. I don't know what's going on in Australia, but it always happens in Australia. And there's a sheep that will be rescued from the wild, and they'll post pictures of them, right? And, and their coat will be so overgrown that you can't see their eyes, their face, you can't make out their body. They look like a big, like, bumbling ball of wool. The, the largest of these was a, a sheep named Chris, which I always love, right? Like, like Ben, Chris, Steve are the names that these sheep get. Not Fluffy, but Chris. Chris was found in the wilderness in the outback of Australia and rescued, and he was finally freed from over 90 pounds of wool that was weighing him down to the point that his legs could barely carry the weight. 
there was a, a man that was in this team that rescued him, and uh, he was interviewed asking, you know, oh, Chris is the new record holder for the most sheep wool. And this man that was interviewed said something incredibly profound. He said this, while the large fleeces often draw international interest, they're nothing to be proud of. Little Oaks, the, the rescue said this, it's no title to covet, as in fact it amounts to being the most neglected sheep in the world. David is telling us that he is not a neglected sheep. Though he is helpless, Though he is needy, though left on his own, he would end up a mess, unable to survive and flourish himself. He is not neglected. He has a shepherd, and therefore he shall not want. And then he goes on to describe this beautiful care that the shepherd gives us. He says, he makes me lie down. Literally, he beds me down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul and leads me in paths of righteousness or leads me in right paths. We, we hear this and we rightly think of kind of an idyllic picture, right? Rolling green hills, soft flowing, babbling brooks, soft underfoot, well carved out paths. It's a uh, is it Thomas Kincaid, the painter that always paints like the lone cabin with the single spiral of smoke in this place that you're like, that doesn't look like Southern Illinois. That's the picture that we get in our mind as David speaks, right? This, this picture, I think. This is, this is what we imagine, right? Like, I want the Lord to lead me there. That looks like green pastures and still waters and paths that are right. But this is the Middle East that David is speaking of. Right? The Middle East is a place where water is scarce, vegetation is spotty, and paths are rocky and even treacherous. I want to show you a place where flocks thrive in the Middle East. This is the Negev. It's a, a desert south of Jerusalem on the southern part of Judea where flocks to this day can be spotted over every brown and dusty hill. What is David saying? Is he saying that the Lord leads me out of the place that I am to a place that's better? In some senses, yes, but I think what David is actually trying to capture for us is that there is in the Lord seeming abundance even when his circumstances doesn't look like it. Faith anticipates provision, even abundance of provision when it seems to be lacking. Faith anticipates that though it feels like green pastures and fresh vegetation is scarce, that we know that we have a shepherd that will lead us continually until we get to it. There is a short season in the, in, in the Negev where the, the fields really do turn green and it lasts about two months. 
And then the rest of the years, it looks like this. And so what shepherds do is they constantly keep the flock moving. They move them until there is vegetation, places for them to eat, to find sustenance, to rest. And then when those have been used up, you know what the shepherd does? He leads them again. They move and they move and they move, but the shepherd always knows when to move them and where to move them to. The same goes for water. Our shepherd, the Lord, knows that even though water is scarce, He knows where to find it and He leads us to it. Water that refreshes and revives our soul. And even though the paths seem rocky and dangerous, the shepherd knows exactly where to lead his sheep to keep their feet on solid ground. Now, I need you to hear this. What David is doing is not giving us a lie. What he's doing is not describing his circumstances. He's describing his experience with the shepherd. When David looks up, he sees green pastures. Not out there, but right here. And when David thirsts, he encounters streams of living water. Not because they're plentiful out there and he can stumble his way into them, but because his good shepherd ensures that he knows no lack. And though the world would describe his paths as treacherous, to David it is a path of righteousness. Right, sure, safe paths because his shepherd leads him. Faith shows us that in our shepherd we have an abundance. We expect rest and stability in a world that is utterly lacking of it. Or maybe to put it another way, faith does not deny our circumstances in this world. Faith doesn't deny when we don't have much in the way of finances. It doesn't deny when our health is poor. It doesn't deny when our relationships are strained. It doesn't deny the circumstances of the world. It just denies the logic of the world. It denies the thought that there is nothing that can be done. It denies the logic that says you must provide for yourself or no one will. It denies the logic that there is no way out. It can't get better from here. Because that kind of logic would leave a dead man inside of a tomb rather than ascended to the right hand of the Father where He is pronounced as the King of kings and Lord of lords. I'll tell you just a small story to bring this home. Rachel and I, a couple weeks ago with our family, got to go to family camp, and I was talking with uh, some friends of ours that were there and just asking them what was good about their last year, and he was describing to me how their family began to read these series of stories of missionaries. And I asked him, what, what was your favorite? Kind of paused for a little bit, and he said, I really love the story of George Mueller. 
If you don't know George Mueller, you don't need a ton in the context of this story, but he was a, a man that moved from Germany to England and began a series of orphanages out of no resources that eventually housed hundreds and hundreds of orphanages in a poverty-stricken area of England called Bristol. But one of the aspects that was unique about George Mueller's story, especially as you read it, is you find that he never asked anyone for anything except for the Lord through prayer. And so after miracle and miracle and miracle where the Lord continued to provide in these miraculous ways, there came a day later in his life where one of his workers at the orphanage came to him and said, it's finally happened. And George Mueller said, what? He said, it's finally happened. The cupboards have run dry. There's no bread to eat. There's no milk to drink. It's meal time, and the kids are hungry, and we have nothing to give them. And while the worker was still standing there, George Mueller ran out of the door, and he ran into the field next to the building, and he saw his son out there. And he ran to his son, and he pulled him, and he said these words, Come and see what the Lord is about to do. What kind of faith meets head on the midst of lacking and trouble and their immediate reaction is, I must go and gather my family because I want them to experience the miraculous provision and goodness of our God the way that I'm about to. This is faith. And it's not faith because we know how the Lord works. It's not faith of the world around us. It's faith in our God. Why does He lead me beside still waters and lay me down in green pastures? Why does He restore my soul and lead me in paths of righteousness for His namesake? The Lord's name is not a title that's given to Him. It's an expression of who He is. When the Lord speaks to Moses in the book of Exodus and declares His name, He doesn't say some title. He says who He is. The Lord, the Lord. Gracious and merciful. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. It is because of who our God is that faith anticipates abundance and rest in the midst of a dry and weary land. He turns slightly in his analogy to a second. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Here's the second picture of faith. Faith anticipates safety and security even in the face of death. David transitions the story from bright and cheery to seemingly dark and gloomy. The sheep is now being ushered and led through a valley. That word literally means a a narrow place, right? You can feel the walls closing in on you and it's a valley of the shadow of death or it's often translated that same Hebrew word as a, a valley of deep darkness. It's enveloping the sheep and he feels this valley, this darkness closing in on him. We just said that this is the good shepherd. The shepherd that 
shows us that we will lack no good thing, that He leads us in these beautiful ways. And so we should, if we're encountering this Scripture, not far off, but as one who is consuming it, we should ask a question here. Why? Why is this Good Shepherd leading us here? Why would He lead us from green pastures, from still waters, into a valley of deep darkness of the shadow of death? Why wouldn't He lead us another way? Or maybe to bring it home personally, we should ask the question, how does a path through the valley of the shadow of death align with us having a good shepherd? How can we have faith in a shepherd who leads us into places like this? And David gives us the answers here. The first answer actually comes in verse 3 before we get into this section. Before we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David declares that his shepherd leads me in paths of righteousness. Again, that word literally means right paths, right? We kind of put a spiritual spin on it, but when we're talking about sheep, we should probably read it as it says, which is right and good, safe and pleasing, life-giving paths. And so David, before he gets to the valley of the shadow of death, says, my shepherd only leads me in paths of righteousness. So when he gets to the valley of the shadow of death, what is his assumption? This must be a path of righteousness. This must be right and good and even life-giving too. Early on when I began to counsel some friends of ours that was going through an incredibly difficult time, and then as Rachel and I walked through some deep suffering ourselves, the, the Lord gave me a perspective that I've used in pastoring ever since, and it's this that we will either determine who the Lord is by our circumstances, or we will come to understand our circumstances by who the Lord is. Let me say that again. We will either try and figure out who the Lord is, whether He's good, whether He's faithful, whether He will lead us in good ways by our circumstances we find ourselves in, or we will come to see and understand our circumstances by knowing who our God is. And David says, even the valley of the shadow of death, because of who my shepherd is, must be a path of righteousness. Additionally, David goes on to tell us that he is walking through the shadow of death. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This is not his home. This is not his destination. The shepherd is not bedding him down here. The shepherd is leading him through the valley of the shadow of death. And that leads us, quite honestly, to the greatest testimony, the greatest answer to how and why would our shepherd do this. Even if we don't know, we know this. Our shepherd is with us. And this is a specifically beautiful arrow that points us to Christ Jesus. Our God and our shepherd does not send us through the valley of the shadow of death. He goes with us, indeed goes before us. 
Christ Jesus did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking on the form of a servant, human flesh, and submitting Himself to the will of the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ Jesus goes before us. Our shepherd goes before us. This may seem like one of those Captain Obvious statements, but he doesn't have to. Like, I need you to hear that he is the God of life that subjected himself to death. He did not have to, and yet, in order to bring us through, He goes before us. What kind of shepherd is this? David goes on, in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, He will fear no evil because our God is with us, His shepherd is with Him, and His rod and His staff bring comfort. The staff was a long crook, if you will, a long stick that was used for corralling the sheep. The rod was a short club that he would carry with him. David is painting imagery for us. The sheep do not always walk near the shepherd. They tend to wander aimlessly away. And David finds great comfort that his shepherd won't let him wander too far. That he draws us back to him. That he ensures that we stay close. As the psalmist will say in Psalm 139, you hem me in. You go behind me and before me. You lay your hand on me. You won't let me go. And then he says, your rod, it protects me. But again, I need you to engage your mind. This is not a weapon to be used at a distance. This rod, this club was short. Which meant he needed to both be near us and our enemies in order to wield it. Like, Do you see that? Do you see that your shepherd, that your God is in the midst of the battle with us? Most of us in our times of dire need and temptation, struggle and strife, pain and sorrow, believe we're reaching out to a God that is out there asking that He can, from afar, send us help. And that's just not the picture that we have. He is a God that is already here, has kept us close for such a time as this that he might reach out his mighty right arm and defeat our enemies for us. So this means that faith doesn't lead us to simply avoid danger at all costs. Right? I, I'm walking through this intimately right now. My oldest in a week is turning 13. And I love him and I shudder at the thought of it. Right? Like we are not Catholic, but if there's a monastery or some sort of abbey or retreat center that I could send him to for the next, I don't know, decade and a half, 
where he would interact with no one else. I might do it. Right? But faith calls me not primarily to protect myself and my son. Instead, faith compels me to grab his hand and walk next to Jesus with him. Faith doesn't lead us away from danger. It leads us towards our shepherd. Faith anticipates abundance and rest in the midst of a dry and weary land. It anticipates safety and security in the face of death. And then finally, faith anticipates celebration and peace even in the middle of a battle. David turns the metaphor a little bit. In verse 5, he says this, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He, he transitions, if you will, from the dark, impending, soon-to-be gloom of the valley of the shadow of death to the middle of the violence of war. David oftentimes in other psalms when he describes his enemies, the presence of his enemies, he describes them like a wild beast that is moments from devouring him. He's painting a picture in this place where he is surrounded by his enemies. The, the, the battle has already begun. His life, his throne, it hangs in the balance. And what is David doing? David is sitting down at a table before the Lord. He's not gathering an army. He's not fortifying his defenses. He's not plotting his escape. Instead, he is reclining at table. He is feasting and being refreshed. This is not the meal of a hasty soldier who grabs just enough to nourish him and sustain him so that he can return as quickly as possible to the battle. This is a man unaware of everything else going on and is consumed by the feast that he is partaking in. It's not the meal that should be happening in our eyes in the middle of the battle. It's the banquet that should occur at the end in victory. But David, while his enemies surround him, is here. Look at the words that David uses. You prepare a table before me. Right? This is the Lord's plan. He has anticipated. He has plotted to bring David to this place. He has determined for us beforehand that in the midst of the chaos of this broken world that we should feast with him. This is not the reactionary, ambulance-driving God. This is the God, as, as my wife said this morning as she was reading through Psalm 139, formed every one of our days. Crafted them for us in order to bring us to this table that He has set. And this word table should evoke imagery for us. The, the connotation is not a table. It is an overflowing table. The table of the king, the, the table of a meal that has every good food and drink that you could imagine. 
And, and the table is always a symbol of relationship. The host of the table in inviting people to it is declaring that He has taken responsibility for them. That He is inviting them into His home where they can seek and find refuge and rest and He will be the one that ensures it takes place. And then the, the, the phrase that I think just brings me to my knees before me. This is an utter reversal of the roles of every page of Scripture up until this point. The entire story of Scripture, and we're going to go through the book of Leviticus this fall, is how do we prepare a place for the presence of the Lord? How do we prepare a place suitable enough that He will return to us? How do we prepare a place good enough that He will dwell with us in this shocking reversal David says you are preparing a place for me you are inviting me into your presence ask yourself the question what does God want most from you what's the point of the faith that he gives to us as a gift and it's not for you to do it's for you to come and to be satisfied in Him. To be before Him. To be with Him. Faith sees this table He has prepared in the midst of the battle. And it sees Him welcoming us to His glorious presence. David wraps up Psalm 23. He wraps up this exposition of faith by saying surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever surely goodness and mercy goodness meaning pleasing and in this word mercy we, we've read it before in the book of Ruth again and again it's it's the Hebrew word hesed it, it means covenantal love steadfast love the type of love that won't quit and David says this goodness and this mercy, this goodness and this steadfast love will surely follow me all the days of my life. Each one of our kids, when they're born, we, we give them a small little blanket and they become, for all of them, a pretty cherished and prized possession. And so if you see any of our kids like under the age of five, you will inherently see a blanket trailing behind them. It doesn't matter where they are in the house, right? doesn't matter if they're about to jump into a bath in the tub. We have to tell them, put your blanket down. It doesn't matter if they're in the midst of eating. It doesn't matter where they are. This blanket trails behind them. And, and you almost get the imagery that this is what David is talking about. Surely goodness and mercy will trail behind me all the days of my life. They will be just a moment behind me. But it's more emphatic than that could ever be. The word follows is better rendered, quite honestly, pursues its core word is used oftentimes in describing when an army is pursuing another David says it doesn't just follow me your goodness and your mercy your steadfast love is pursuing me every day if I ascend to the highest heavens there you are if I make my bed in Sheol, there you are. 
And because of this, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love this for David. He wanted to build the Lord a temple. And his son eventually would build the Lord a temple. But David would have known of the tent of meeting and the tabernacle. He would have known that this was the place where the glory of the Lord dwelled, that the people of God could draw near. But David, when he says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, actually couldn't. He could dwell near it. He could dwell around it. He could dwell in the courts of it, but David could not go into the midst of it. He could not go to the Holy of Holies where the nearest, dearest, most glorifying presence of God existed. He couldn't get there. A counselor one time told me that everyone needs to figure out the type of people that they have in their life. That we should have people, we should have front porch people. The type of people that come over You know, the Amazon guy. And he can leave all of the goodness on your porch. And then you have foyer people. Right? You you crack the door, you let them in. Right? It's not not the people that knock on your door where you hold the door like half closing while you're sticking out of it like to just signal like you're not coming in. You have foyer people. You can come in. Stay right here on the rug. Let's chat. You have living room people, right? They get to come in, maybe even relax on the couch, and then hopefully for most of you, a very select group of bedroom people, okay? But David is saying, God, I I want all the way in. I don't want to be a porch person. I don't want to be a court person. Surely, if you are my shepherd, somehow you're pursuing love and mercy will make a way for me to dwell in the intimate presence of your house all the days of my life. And Christ Jesus has done just that. Our faith is that we have a great high priest who though he was tempted in every way that we were, was perfect and flawless. And through his sacrificial death and his miraculous resurrection, Our sin and death has been defeated. And now we are invited with boldness to go into the throne room, the inner parts of the house of our Father for all time. Church, faith sets our eyes on our shepherd, the good shepherd, and it declares that he is faithful and always good. Pray with me.